right, well, I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and you enjoyed spending time with friends and family and were able to do some reflection on the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I'm thankful that I was able to do a little bit of both this week. And, and as I was thinking about the birth, life, and death of Jesus, I started to think a lot about expectations, especially as I began to look ahead to the new year. And I thought about how so many of the people in Jesus' day missed out on their Messiah because of their expectations. They expected one thing, and Jesus was another. And then I started thinking about the new year and the expectations that I have going into the new year, and thinking, boy, I sure hope that I don't miss out on things that the Lord has in store for me because my expectations are off. And then I started thinking about how we as a body, Christ, have collective expectations, individual expectations, and how much those things shape and inform the way we go about our faith, the way we go about doing church. And, and so I thought maybe just for a second, if we could, just in your mind, think about something that you expect to happen to yourself in the new year. Something that you expect to happen in the new year. For me, the first thing, when I asked myself that question, the first thing that came to mind was, I get to be an uncle for the first time this year. My brother and his wife are having a little baby, and so I finally get to be an uncle. And then I thought about how my expectations really guide how I am going to go about and live my life. I started thinking about the things that Scripture tells me to expect, because that is going to inform how I live out my faith. Well, I was doing a lot of thinking this week, can you tell? A lot of reflection. And, and I realized that there are some things that Scripture teaches us to look forward to, teaches us to expect, that weren't really aligning with my expectations for myself. What the Scripture says to expect wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. And so, I think that is probably true for many of us here as well. That the expectations that you have for yourself don't necessarily align all the time with what Scripture says to expect. So today, we're going to take a look at expectations. I've been saying that word a lot because that is what I want us to key in on. I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's really my prayer today that the Lord will prepare us with proper New Year's expectations so that our goals and resolutions will be properly aligned with God's goals and expectations for us. So as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to speak your truth. Lord, I ask that you would just fill me with your spirit and you would prepare our hearts to hear about the expectations you want us to have as we go into this new year. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now we're going to begin in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and as we begin, we are reminded, first and foremost, of the expectation of living in hope. The expectation to live in hope that our Lord wants us as we continue on our journey through life. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, just so we have some historical context for this letter here, it was written by the Apostle Peter, and most evangelical scholars believe that he wrote this letter from Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero. And many of them believe that it was written shortly after Emperor Nero set fire to Rome and then blamed it on the Christians and there began a great persecution against them. And so he's writing to Christians who had been dispersed all through what is present-day Turkey, and he is encouraging them with the truth of the gospel. And at the beginning of the letter here, he reminds his readers, first and foremost, of the living hope that they have by putting their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why should we praise him and bless his name? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that right there is the first of our New Year's expectations. The living hope we have through faith in what Jesus has done for us. See, Peter's audience, they understood that they were broken and messed up and unable to save themselves, that we're all unable to save ourselves and that they needed something to save them and that something was a someone named Jesus Christ who saved them through his life, death, and resurrection and he saved them from an eternity of separation from God, an eternity of hell, so that instead they could spend eternity with God in heaven and could live lives praising and blessing his name. That is the living hope that Peter was reminding these people that they had, and that is a living hope that we have who have put our faith in Christ. It's an inheritance, he says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us go through the days, weeks, and months spending too little time reflecting on that hope and being encouraged by that hope and praising the Lord because of that hope. And what does that word mean, anyway, the word hope? In the Greek, it refers to an expectation of something 
that will assuredly happen in the future. There is no hint of uncertainty. It is the confident expectation of a certain future event. And because of the certainty of that future event, biblical hope differs significantly from the world's idea of hope. See, the world's idea of hope centers around uncertainty and chance. The world says, I hope we win, or I hope that I'll be good enough to get into heaven. These are the things that the unbelieving world says. Here's the problem. Remember those expectations of the new year that I just asked you all to think about? If we were to kind of sit back and analyze those things, I'll bet that many of them would probably sound more like the uncertain world's idea of hope than the confident and assured biblical idea of hope that we are called to have as followers of Christ. Even when it comes to our hope of spending eternity in heaven with our Father. Those of us who have a living hope can and should confidently say, I am saved by my victorious Lord, and I will spend eternity in heaven with him. You might ask, how how can I be so confident in that statement? How can I say that with so much confidence? Well, that's what verse 5 here is all about. It reminds us that we who have been born again, who have put our faith in Christ, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I can be confident in the living hope that I have because it's not me who earned it in the first place, and it's not me who is protecting it, who's guarding it, who's keeping it. It's our Heavenly Father who caused us to be born again and who is guarding and keeping us for that inheritance. And this hopeful confidence is how we should live as believers in Christ. We should have that hope at all times, especially as we look to a new year full of new beginnings. This phrase here, this living hope, is actually in the present tense in the Greek, which means that it's an ongoing and continuous action. As a Christian, we are to continuously live with this hope. But, you know, when, when, you, when you put these messages together and, and preach them, you've got to be honest with yourself, right? And as I was studying this this week, if I'm honest with myself, I know that I can all too easily forget about the hope that I have. And I can get bogged down with the distractions of this world. I'm just, all right, just being honest. I know how hard this is, but the Spirit of the Lord produces that hope within us, even in the midst of those difficult times. There was a very... Um, successful missionary named Henry Morrison who worked in Africa for over 40 years with his wife and together they led many people to faith in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Henry got sick 
and he and his wife had to return home to New York City. And so they boarded a big ship back across the Atlantic, and they soon found out that there was someone very famous on the ship with them. It was the President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, who had just completed a highly publicized African safari. And so as they arrived back into the harbor in New York City, there was a huge crowd waiting to greet their beloved president. There was a parade and ticker tape and bands and music and cheering and and this huge greeting to welcome Roosevelt home. And as Henry Morrison watched this big to-do about the president, and then exited the ship and saw that there wasn't a single person to greet he and his wife, he began to grow resentful. He began to think about how he had given his entire life to save the souls of men, and there wasn't a single person there to recognize it. And Roosevelt, on the other hand, who was out killing helpless animals for sport, received a hero's welcome. And so they took their cab ride to the apartment, and this resentment and bitterness continued to grow in Morrison until they got back, and his wife asked him, Henry, what's wrong? What's the matter? And he explained how... He had given so much for the spiritual well-being of these people. And this man who did nothing of spiritual significance was being rewarded on his return home. And she listened to him and sat quietly for a moment. And then she put her hand on his shoulder and she said to him very softly, Henry, we aren't home yet. We aren't home yet. See, Henry lost his view of the living hope he had in Christ, and it made him resentful and bitter as he began to long for the world's adulation. Like Henry, I think we lose sight of our heavenly hope too. And we can get focused on the things that this world has to offer and then begin to live our lives seeking out and expecting to receive those things. But that, that's not the mindset, that's not the life of expectation that we're called to. So long as I draw breath, I am to continuously live in the hope of my heavenly home. Christian brother and sister, this new year, our expectation and goal should be to live in the hope of our imperishable inheritance. The inheritance that God himself is protecting for us and keeping for us so that nothing can take away from us our reward. And the truth is, we're going to need that hopeful expectation of our heavenly home in order to properly handle the second thing that this passage tells us that we need to expect in the new year. We need to have an expectation of living in hardship. 
Peter has encouraged us by reminding us of the expectation of living in hope, and now he prepares us for the fact that until we make it to our heavenly home, we need to be prepared to face hardship. Picking it up in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the things that I expect to happen to me in the new year, trials and tribulation and hardship is not the first thing that comes to my mind. And yet, Peter tells us that we should expect to be tested by various trials. In fact, later on in the letter, he makes it even more explicit when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, Christian. Don't be shocked. Don't be caught off guard at the fiery trial. By the way, here in chapter 4, do not be surprised. That's an imperative. That's a command in the Greek. We are commanded not to be surprised. Which, when you combine it with the negative there, do not be surprised. The implication is that Peter's audience was, in fact, surprised at the fiery trial that they were now facing. Remember, Rome had probably just been burned, and the Christians were being blamed for it. And so they were literally, they were being strung up on crosses and set afire. Literally, a fiery trial. That's what was happening to them. That's why they were dispersed. Now, we don't face that kind of persecution here in the United States yet. But we can't be surprised when we're tried and tempted in other ways. In fact, this new year, we need to expect that. We've got to have the proper expectations on this. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing in Scripture that says that we should expect to have wealth and health and prosperity and everything's going to be happy and joyful and you're not going to have any problems and you'll probably get a new car and win the lottery. That doesn't exist anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus himself taught in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Not the world. In Christ we may have peace. Because in the world you will have 
tribulation. You will have trial. You will have suffering. You will have hardship. You will have temptation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen? We've got to have proper expectations here. Otherwise, we're going to be blindsided and fall to the various trials that we face. Trials or or temptations, as the Greek word is also translated, refers to putting something to the test in order to discover its true nature or quality. And I want us to understand here that there is no moral connotation to this word. It's not inherently good and it's not inherently bad. Whether it becomes a good proof of righteousness or a bad inducement to evil depends entirely on who? On us. It depends entirely on our response to the trial, to the temptation. If we interact with the fiery trial and renounce our flesh and rely on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, the test proves our faithfulness, and it's a good thing though difficult. But if we indulge the trial and fall to our fleshly desires, it's a bad thing as it draws us into sin. Now, it says we're going to face various trials and temptations. The Greek word for various, on the other hand, literally means many-colored And it refers to all manner and kinds of things. All kinds of different trials and hardships. And while I'm certainly not wishing hardship on anyone, I really want you to (laughs) hear my heart on this. I'm not hoping for this. I'm hoping for that living hope. Amen? But I want us, this isn't talked about enough need to have the proper expectations. The people of God need to understand that we're going to face difficult times, and they come in all shapes and sizes. That means that this upcoming year, we shouldn't be surprised to see some of us lose our jobs or go through financial difficulty. Some of us get sick and face death or lose someone close to us who we love, maybe tragically. Some of us are going to be betrayed, disrespected, hurt by those who we don't see it coming from. Some of us are going to go through terrible marriage difficulties or have our children seemingly walk away from the Lord. Some of us are going to be overwhelmed by doubt and anxiety and fear. Some of us are going to be persecuted for our faith. The list, unfortunately, goes on and on. And even if we don't face one of these quote-unquote bigger trials... There are an infinite number of smaller tests that we should expect to face. I mean, even this week, as I was 
late for a Christmas party that I was trying to get to, the Lord saw fit to put a little old lady driving in front of me, driving about 10 miles an hour below the speed limit. Little test, sure. Was I going to pass the test? Was I going to learn patience and learn that my schedule really matters not to God? And after I ran her off the road, I repented of my sin. <laughs> right? But, but we're going to face those little trials, those little tests all along the way also. And it's impossible for us to forecast which type of trial we're going to be tested with. But what is certain is that every single one of us is going to face hardship this new year. You've got to have realistic expectations on that. Now, I know that's, that's some pretty heavy and depressing truth. But the Lord knows how difficult this truth is. And so in these verses, he gives us three truths about trials to help us persevere through them and to encourage us when we're in the midst of that storm. And the first one, as we've already looked at, is the fact that we have a living hope to hold on to in the midst of the storm. That's why Peter begins by reminding us of that living hope. He doesn't just dive right into the difficulty. He says, remember the living hope that you have, Christian. Because though we will face hardship in our lives, we have the hope of eternity that the Lord is protecting for us for and protecting for us. And it's because of this truth that we can actually rejoice and have peace in the midst of a trial. Years ago, there was a captain of a large transport ship that took his family with him on his trip from Liverpool to New York City. And on the way across the Atlantic, a huge storm came out of nowhere, and it, it rocked the ship. And it almost capsized it. It came upon them at night and knocked everything everywhere, including all of the passengers. And, and so they kind of got up frantic, realizing that they were in grave danger in the midst of this storm. And so they began to dress themselves and prepare in case they needed to go to the lifeboats, in case the ship went down. And in the midst of all that chaos, the captain's young daughter woke up. And she asked, what's going on? Why is everyone running around? And they explained to her the danger that they were in. And the five-year-old little girl had one question. She said, is daddy at the helm? And when they told her that he was at the helm, she smiled, laid back down on the pillow, and despite the crashing waves and the howling wind and the thunder and lightning, she was soon fast asleep again. That little girl had the confident expectation that her daddy would take care of everything. Even though there was a storm raging around her, she had the hope of salvation, not because of anything she could do, but because of what she trusted her father to do. 
She rejoiced in that and was at peace because of it. Brother and sister, we can do the exact same thing with our Heavenly Father. We can rejoice and be at peace because He is at the helm. The Greek word for rejoice here in verse 6 literally means much jumping. And it conveys the idea that the thing being celebrated or rejoiced over was so great that no circumstance could shake it. That nothing could overcome what I was rejoicing over. And I want us to know that this is not synonymous with happiness. It does not mean happiness. Biblical rejoicing is not happiness. It's more akin to practicing peaceful contentment, no matter what the circumstance. And I found interesting this week learning that there is not a single instance in ancient Greek literature of a writer using this word except for in the Bible. See, the concept of rejoicing in trials is foreign to the world. And yet, it's a central teaching of Scripture. Joy does not mean happiness. And and we see that because in verse 6, it specifically states that some trials will grieve us. We will be greatly saddened by some of the things that we go through. And yet, we can rejoice whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're down in the valley. You might be wondering, how can I rejoice and be grieved at the same time? That, that, that's, that's like a paradox or something. I like what Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, mariners tell us that there are some parts of the sea where there is a current upon the surface going one way, but that down in the depths there is a stronger current running the other way. Now the Christian is like that. On the surface there is a stream of heaviness rolling with dark waves, but down in the depths there is a strong undercurrent of great rejoicing that is always flowing there. Kind of like the EAC. East Australian Current. Any Finding Nemo fans out there? Okay, very good. See, the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us is independent of the circumstances that we face. And it is dependent on what? On the living hope that we have. So that though we may be grieved in trials, we can still rejoice in our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. God never promised that we wouldn't face the storm, but he has promised that we who put our faith in his son will make it to heaven's shore. Amen? James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And that leads us to our second truth about trials that the Lord assures us of. 
He tells us that he will only allow us to face trials that are necessary for our growth and refinement. If necessary, Peter writes, these few words are very powerful and they should be encouraging to us. The Lord will never allow us to be tested by anything more than is necessary for our growth and refinement. Not a single tear will ever be needlessly shed. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to allow us to go through something that isn't necessary. Of course, that also means that everything we do go through is necessary for our growth and refinement. Though oftentimes, the reason behind those trials are hidden to us. Now, if I'm not walking very closely with the Lord and a trial comes along, it's kind of easy to see why that trial is necessary. The Lord is trying to get my attention so that I can put him back on the throne of my life. But it's in those times when we think we're doing well spiritually that it's difficult to see the necessity of this trial. Why, Lord, is this happening to me? I'm, 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 my relationship with you is great. Is it? We're masters at deceiving ourselves, aren't we? God knows our hearts. He knows what we need, and we need to learn to trust him even when we think things are going well but especially when things aren't going well. Again, Spurgeon said this, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the crucible and the furnace, the bellows that have blown up the coals, and the hand with which thrust me into the heat? I love Spurgeon. He's so evocative. I bear witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. In shunning trial, we are seeking to avoid a blessing. Write that last line down. In shunning a trial, we are seeking to avoid a blessing. You might not see it at first, but it is necessary to bless us. Does anyone remember the Biosphere Project in Arizona? The University of Arizona is kind of overseeing it. Anyone? No? One person. Yay! Well, I was reading about this project this week, and I learned how these scientists are studying how a controlled and artificial environment would affect humans and plants over extended periods of time. And one of the interesting things that they discovered pertained to the trees that they were growing in this artificial environment. See, though the trees grew quickly, and seemed healthy at first glance, their root systems were extremely underdeveloped and their branches 
were thin and weak. And as they continued to grow, they became so top-heavy, so pumped full of the fertilizer that the world was giving them that they could no longer sustain their own weight and they toppled over on themselves. And the scientists learned that in order for the trees to grow and sustain their own weight and be healthy, they had to be exposed to the outside elements like the wind and the rain. It was only when the trees went through the storms that their root systems grew deep enough into the ground and their branches grew thick and strong enough for them to support their continued growth. I think that we are a lot like trees. If we grow comfortable on the fertilizer that this world is constantly trying to pump into us, and we never go through the storms of life, eventually we're just going to topple over, and the only thing we'll be fit for is firewood. But if we recognize the value of the storm and how it strengthens us and drives our faith and trust deep into the Lord, not only will we survive the storm, but we will flourish and we'll produce more fruit than ever before. That brings us to the third truth about trials. Not only do we have our living hope to hold on to, not only are they necessary for our growth and refinement, but we can be assured that this testing, thank you Jesus, will only last for a little while. Peter writes in verse 6, now for a little while we'll face trials. For a little while is one word in the Greek which means very small in number. All our times of trial and grief last only but a moment. Of course, when we're in the midst of that trial, it sure doesn't feel like just a could be split second, does it? When your loved one is sick in the hospital, or when your marriage is crumbling or your finances are in shambles, time seems to kind of slow down to a crawl. And the hardship, that wilderness experience seems to go on and on and on, doesn't it? And the truth is, our trials, they may last for weeks, months, years, We've got to have the proper perspective on our trial. We've got to have the expectation of eternity in view. Our time here on earth is but a moment compared to eternity. And the time that we're on earth is taken up by an even shorter amount of time in trials and hardships. The problem is that we are spiritually nearsighted as we look to this world and go after the things that it promises and forget what eternity is holding for us, that living hope that we have that the Lord is keeping for us. See, when we're in the darkness of the trial, we've got to hold on to what God 
has showed us in the light of his truth. Corey Ten Boom says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on the light at the end of the tunnel and remember our expectation of the living hope that we have. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but to the, the things that are unseen are eternal. God never asks us to deny the harsh reality of our trials. He won't ask us to do that. He only asks that we take his perspective on our hardships and keep eternity with him in view. There's an ancient story of a Greek soldier who fought under the general Antigonus. And this soldier had a disease that caused him great pain and was going to end in his death. They knew that it would kill him. And so this soldier was always the first soldier to rush off in battle, was the first one at the head of the line because he was going to die anyway. He had nothing to lose. And the ferocity of his attacks and his unrelenting charge against the enemy and willingness to go and help a fellow soldier in need turned the tide in many battles. And the valor and courage of this soldier caught Antigonus's eye, and he grew fond of him. And he began to look high and low for a cure for the soldier. And lo and behold, they found a physician who was able to cure him of his disease. But a funny thing happened after he was cured. He never again rushed into battle. In fact, he did everything he could so that he didn't have to face the hardship he formally rushed headlong into. Because he now believed that this world offered him something worth living for, and he wanted to enjoy his time in comfort and pleasure and prosperity. And I'm afraid that too many of us are like this soldier. We've been set free by our faith in Jesus from the death sentence that sin had upon us, and yet we take our eyes off of eternity and forget the fleeting nature of this world. We do everything we can to avoid the hardships that come against us, especially in this culture where everything comes so easy. Even if you are not wealthy, you still have so much. And we seek to continually satisfy our desires for comfort and pleasure. We can't be like that soldier. We've got to keep.
keep eternity in view and continue to fight the good fight of the faith in the midst of the trials so that the Lord can refine us and we can continue to strike against the enemy and come to the aid of our brother and sister in the Lord no matter what it costs us. We've got to hold on to our living hope in the midst of the hardship. Because the truth is that this new year, we will face hardships. And the Lord wants us to be prepared for them. He wants us to have an expectation of hardship, not that we're some masochistic people who enjoy going through pain. No. He wants us not to be caught off guard by it when it comes, so that we can grow and be refined by it. And that expectation is going to be tempered by the expectation of the living hope we have in Jesus Christ. As we think about the new year and we think about all of those resolutions and goals that we have for ourselves, let's be sure to have the proper expectations so that we can see clearly and continue to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength that living in the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel brings. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you so much for the hope that we have through faith in Him, that what He has done for us, dying in our place so that we might have life, is imperishable. Nothing can take that away. It is undefiled. It is unfading, Lord. You are keeping it for us. And not only are you keeping our inheritance, Lord, you're protecting us from ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you do that. That we have a living hope in you. And yet we know, Lord, that we're going to face tough times. We're going to have storms, some big, some small. 